0: Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A high-profile executive vanishes from his driveway one morning without a trace. Kidnappers requesting millions in ransom. 300 investigators following a literal paper trail of instructions for the victim's safe return. Would law enforcement find him in time? This is Method and Madness, Episode 6 The Kidnapping of Sydney Riso. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Exxon is a huge international oil corporation, not immune to controversy, particularly when it comes to environmental issues. When an Exxon executive disappeared in the 90s, was it possible that it was at the hands of an environmental extremist group? Or was there another motive? Let's dive in. It was April 29th, 1992, the first day of what would become one of the largest national kidnapping investigations in U.S. history. Today's case takes us to New Jersey and the kidnapping of the CEO of a subsidiary of Exxon. Sidney J. Riso was born in New Orleans in 1935. A petroleum engineering graduate from Louisiana State University, Riso went on to work for Exxon in 1957. Working his way up the ranks, he began serving as vice president of Exxon Gas in Dallas in 1978. By 1980, He was the VP of Production and in 1985 became Executive Vice President before finally becoming CEO of Exxon International. Sidney was married, a father of five, and lived in a beautiful ranch-style home in an upscale area of Morris Township, New Jersey in Morris County, approximately 35 miles from New York City. On a clear, sunny morning in April 1992, Sidney Riso, age 57, ate breakfast with his wife of 37 years, Patricia. It was a typical workday morning for Sidney, and just before 7.30 a.m. that Wednesday, he said goodbye to his wife and made his way out to the garage, got in his car, and set out to drive the 10-minute commute to his Exxon office in Florham Park, New Jersey. His house was located on a street where the homes were set far back from the road, barely peeking out from behind the oak, pine, and maple trees that towered above the manicured lawns. Sidney drove down the 200-foot-long driveway where each day he would stop the car near the street, reach his arm out, and pick up his daily newspaper before driving off to work. That morning, however, he never made it to the office. Around 8.45 a.m., a neighbor saw Sydney's car at the end of the driveway with the engine running, Sydney's coat inside on the seat, and the driver's side door open. She knew something was off and called her husband, who also worked at Exxon, and asked him if Sydney was in the office. In turn, he went to Exxon Security, who then confirmed that Sydney had not shown up for work that day, and the police were contacted to look into the situation. Police arrived at the Morris Township residence to talk to Sidney Riso's wife, who told them that she had seen her husband leave for work that morning at his usual time. She worriedly informed the police that Sydney had had a heart attack three years earlier and was on medication, and quickly came to the realization that he may be experiencing some kind of medical distress in the area of the home. Had he fallen ill and exited his car to get help? Police subsequently conducted a search by foot of the Riso's land and neighborhood, followed by an aerial search by helicopter. They found no trace of Sydney and no indication of what may have happened that morning. Local hospitals were called, which turned up nothing. Neighbors were interviewed, but nobody had seen Sydney that morning, and police had very little to go off of. This was a very high-profile executive that seemed to vanish into thin air, and the situation could be dire. So the FBI were called in, and a command post was set up at the Riso's home so that investigators could start getting to work. They didn't want to rule out any possible scenarios and considered that Sidney may have taken off on his own to start a new life, maybe escaping the stressful demands of his job or a tense situation at home the FBI, attempting to get a glimpse into Sidney's mind, looked through his documents, business dealings, relationships, and appointments to get an idea of what his recent behavior may tell them. They spoke to his wife and family and concluded that there didn't appear to be any domestic issues. Due to the nature of Sidney's occupation and the company that he worked for, Police and FBI also didn't want to rule out the possibility of an abduction or foul play, but what was puzzling was that Sydney didn't appear to have any enemies either professionally or personally. After an extensive search of the area, the April sun set that day. Law enforcement were baffled, a family sick with worry, and no traces of Sydney Riso were found. The next day, April 30th, Exxon officials in Florham Park received a phone call from a woman who claimed to be the kidnapper of Sidney Riso. She told the officials that they could find out more information about her demands, but they needed to take a little road trip to a local mall for further instructions. The Exxon officials were already working with law enforcement, so FBI agents drove to the mall in Livingston, New Jersey, about 11 miles from Sydney's home. There, taped to a parking lot lamppost, they found an envelope. Inside it was Sidney's corporate credit card, providing proof that the kidnapper was indeed who they said they were, and that they did have Sidney. Also inside the envelope was a typed letter stating, quote, The major industrial entities continue their thoughtless programs, which are destroying the earth and harming countless forms of life. Other quotes World organizations and governmental bodies have proven themselves totally ineffective in preventing these activities. We propose to make industry pay for this continuing campaign. To ensure your contribution, we have seized the president of your international division. The letter demanded a ransom of $18.5 million, the highest ransom ever requested in U.S. history, and emphasized that this was Exxon's quote-unquote contribution. The letter was signed, The Warriors of the Rainbow, a possible clue to the kidnapper's identity. It didn't take long for the FBI to realize what that probably referred to. The Rainbow Warrior was a ship owned by the international environmental group Greenpeace. That ship had been bombed in 1985, by the French Secret Service, killing one crew member on board. So had someone associated with Greenpeace abducted Sidney Riso as part of an environmental protest? It was only three years earlier that the catastrophic Exxon Valdez oil spill occurred in Alaska, with more than 10 million gallons of oil pouring into U.S. waters, and Exxon had been heavily criticized for both the spill... And the response to it. Instructions in the letter were laid out in numbered bullet points and ordered Exxon officials to buy a cell phone so they could accept calls from the kidnappers and arrange for payment. In order to communicate by phone, Exxon would need to run an ad under the pets column the next day in the newspaper, The Star Ledger. In that ad, they were to mention rare birds and reference the new cell phone number. To instruct the kidnapper how to get in contact, the cell phone was only to be answered by a specific Exxon executive, Jim Maracus. The ransom drop was to be done by Mrs. Riso, one of her daughters, and Jim Maracus, using the Riso's white Subaru station wagon. The money was not to be tracked or there would be consequences. The letter stated that Mr. Riso was being held in total isolation without food or water, and they threatened that if the money wasn't provided, Mr. Riso would die and that another executive would be seized. The kidnappers made assurances that once released, Mr. Riso would say that he had been well treated, despite having said earlier in the letter that he was without food or water. The FBI sent the ransom note to a crime lab to look for forensic evidence, prints, hairs, etc., but nothing was found to aid them in their investigation. Working with Exxon, the FBI did as instructed, and the next day on May 1st, their ad for rare international birds appeared in the Star Ledger with the newly purchased cell phone's number. It was a nail-biter of a day, as police, FBI, and Sidney Reese's family all waited for that call, which would be answered by FBI agent Ed Peterson posing as the Exxon exec Jim Arrakis. Finally, that night around 9.30, the call came in. On the line, it was the voice of Sidney Riso, a recording, pleading for Exxon to work with the kidnappers. In the recording, a weak-sounding Sidney said that there was another note to find at nearby Lewis Morris Park. The FBI moved quickly and found the letter in the park, and it had more instructions for Exxon officials. The ransom demand of $18.5 million was to be packaged into 10 different Eddie Bauer laundry bags in used $100 bills. This letter, like the previous one, was signed, Rainbow Warriors. The FBI took the demands seriously, and getting Sydney back safely was their number one priority. They requested the $18.5 million from Exxon. Exxon got to work getting together the money, everyone was desperate for a positive outcome. A similar event had occurred in 1974, when an Exxon subsidiary in Argentina had experienced the kidnapping of an executive from Cleveland. 37-year-old Victor Samuelson was abducted and released after three months, when Exxon paid a ransom of $14.2 million. He was reunited with his family upon release. Meanwhile, the FBI waited for instructions to make the ransom drop, and Sydney's wife Patricia made a plea on TV for her husband's safe return. She said that if her husband was in fact being held by an environmental group, that they should be aware that Sydney was very concerned for the environment. Soon, the money was ready, divided up into used $100 bills as requested, and all everyone could do was wait. Two days went by, and no calls came in on the designated cell phone. And then on May 3rd, the call came in. It was time for the ransom exchange. The kidnappers ordered the FBI agent—remember, he was posing as an Exxon exec—to travel 13 miles from the Riso home to a phone booth outside of a restaurant and wait for a call. Two FBI agents did. But, to their chagrin, no call came in that night. It was now the fifth day of the investigation, three days since receiving any proof that Sidney Riso was alive, and the FBI didn't feel that they were any closer to bringing him home safely. What had gone wrong? Why hadn't the kidnappers contacted them that night? Days went by with zero contact, and on May 7th, Morris County Prosecutor Michael Murphy publicly requested proof that Sidney Riso was still alive a photo with him holding today's newspaper or a call from him, anything, but nothing came. By now, Greenpeace had denied any involvement in the kidnapping, and on Tuesday, May 12th, another note was received, this time by the corporate office of Exxon in Irving, Texas. This letter was a little different. While it demanded the ransom, it also displayed anger by the kidnappers, not regarding environmental issues, but toward the FBI and their interference in the ransom requests. It referred to the previous, quote, botched delivery, an insight into what may have happened outside of that restaurant when no call came in. It seemed that the communication from the kidnappers during that instance, while well, they hadn't been clear and an opportunity to listen to another recording from Sydney, was missed. Anyway, today's letter was signed. Members of the conspiracy referred to the kidnappers' former Beirut hostages, claimed that Sydney had been moved out of the country, and gave instructions that more communication would occur soon. The FBI were becoming skeptical that the kidnappers were in any way affiliated with an environmental group, as all of the communication as of late were more focused on money than on concerns for environmental issues. It was now day 13, and the FBI had plenty of time to trace the calls that were coming in from the kidnappers. Turned out, all of the calls that had come into the designated cell phone were all placed from payphones in the area of the Riso's home, all in New Jersey. This fact, combined with where all of the letters had been located, led law enforcement to believe that this was no international group. The mall, the local park, a restaurant. It seemed that whoever the kidnapper or kidnappers were, that they were local. Some additional information that may help identify the kidnappers started to trickle in. Some neighbors of the Riso's told law enforcement that they remembered a blonde woman jogging down the street that the Riso's lived on several times before the kidnapping. Nobody recognized her as living nearby, but She was no longer making her morning jogs down that road. There was also a white van in the area when the blonde had been jogging. And finally, in the last letter received from the kidnappers, forensics experts discovered a clue attached. A hair that turned out to be that of a golden retriever. It was a needle in a haystack. A blonde woman, a possible white van, and a very common pet. But it was something. By May 15th, day 17 of the investigation, it had been weeks since the voice of Sidney Riso was recorded, and FBI agent Jeremiah Doyle publicly demanded proof that Riso was alive. Still, nothing of the sort was provided by the kidnappers. Sydney's wife didn't lose hope, however. She felt strongly that he was still alive and that he was fighting. The following day, 15 miles from the Riso home, A security guard at the Rockaway Town Square Mall received a phone call from a female saying that there was a note located in the mall parking lot. The FBI were called in, and they discovered the note on a lamppost. The note demanded that Sydney's wife Patricia make a public plea for her husband's safe return, which of course she did, going on TV that night. And then once again... Weeks went by with no contact and no proof that Sydney was still alive. On June 1st, another letter was received at the Florham Park office of Exxon, where Sydney worked. It again demanded payment, but didn't include any information on how, when, or where to drop the payment. A week later, a call came into the designated cell phone with a male voice asking why payment hadn't been made. FBI agent Peterson tried to get more info from the caller, but they hung up, and the call was traced to a payphone in the U.S. state of Georgia. It had been over a month since Sidney Riso was kidnapped, and now the team of investigators was made up of 300 people desperate to locate him and put an end to his family's pain. On June 18th, the final day of the investigation, another call, the kidnappers now told the agents to get ready for the ransom drop. The FBI was prepared. They had the money and they were eager to know where to bring it. While the calls from the kidnappers were brief, the FBI was still tracing all of the calls that came in and had begun to dispatch a team of agents to stake out payphones in all of the areas that the letters had been found and that the calls had been coming from. Anytime a call came into the designated cell phone, The dispatched agents were alerted to watch for anyone using the payphones. Several more calls came in that day, all from payphones in the area. A disguised voice in a high pitch told the FBI to go to a nearby road and look for a note on the ground. Armed with the cell phone and half of the ransom money, agents sped off to the location and found the note, which instructed them to go to yet another location, a general store. At the general store, they frantically searched for a note which they finally found taped to the bottom of a bench. The cat and mouse game wasn't over yet, and that note instructed them to go to another location four miles away where they found a note in a bush. This one directed the agents to a payphone down the road and said they needed to be there to receive a call at 10 o'clock p.m. Now there was a major problem. In this wild goose hunt, locating the notes hadn't been simple, and it was already 10.15 p.m. This was the first the agents were made aware that they were on a timer. So once again, they rushed off to the next location to a payphone near a train station. It was now 10.30 p.m., 30 minutes after they were supposed to have been there. The payphone at the final location rang, and the agents learned that they were supposed to have boarded a train a little after 10 and now it was too late. Frustrated and worried that they missed their opportunity to save Sydney Riso, moments later agents got a break. They were contacted by the surveillance team watching the local payphones. One of the dispatched agents noticed that at the same time the call was coming in to the agents at the train station, that a man wearing latex gloves was making a call from a payphone at a Chester shopping center about 12 miles from the Riso home. The man removed his gloves when he finished the call and got into a red Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra, where a passenger was waiting for him. It was now 10.40 p.m. The license plate number was jotted down by the surveillance agent, and police traced it to a rental agency in Hackettstown, New Jersey. 36 minutes later, at 11:16 p.m., a blonde woman was seen by the dispatch surveillance team making a call from a payphone at Somerset Hills Elk Club in Gladstone. This had been a popular payphone for the kidnappers as they had made a total of 4 calls from this location. The team observed the woman hanging up the phone that night and getting into a white Mercedes. By this time, the FBI had gotten in touch with the owner of the rental agency and agents met with her at the rental office in Hackettstown. They found out that the red Oldsmobile had been rented by a man named Arthur Seal. FBI agents were still there discussing their next move when a car pulled into the lot of the rental agency. It was the Red Oldsmobile, driven by a man that matched the description of the person making the phone call in the latex gloves. The man driving was 45-year-old Arthur Seal, and he was arrested immediately. Arthur told the agents that he was just returning a car and waiting for his wife. While in handcuffs, his blonde wife Irene, also aged 45, pulled into the lot in a white Mercedes. She, too, was arrested. The white Mercedes was searched, and inside, agents found plenty of evidence, including four Eddie Bauer laundry bags, rubber gloves, three bullet shells, and a directory of home addresses for Exxon's top executives. Arthur and Irene Seal, a couple living in Lebanon Township, New Jersey, parents to two children, owners of a Golden Retriever, were being questioned, but they were not cooperating. They publicly expressed their love for each other, but refused to tell law enforcement anything regarding Sidney Riso or his whereabouts. Four days after the arrest, Irene Seal turned on her husband and agreed to cooperate with the police, probably by the advice of her lawyer. They were finally going to get the whole story and hopefully find Sydney Risso. Irene Seal told investigators that she and her husband had planned to kidnap an Exxon executive four months before they took Sidney from his home. Arthur Seal had worked security for Exxon in the mid-80s, and knew of many of the executives there. They planned the abduction by having Irene jog past several different homes of the executives until they made their decision that Sidney Risa was their target. They had discovered that he had a pretty consistent routine. Every weekday, Sidney would drive down his driveway at the same time and stop to get his newspaper. The newspaper became the key to executing their plan. On April 29th, Irene and Arthur Seal arrived outside of the Riso home in a white van, which they parked on the street just a bit down from Sydney's driveway. Arthur got into the passenger seat, and Irene jogged down the road and kicked Sydney's newspaper so that it was just far enough for him to have to stop his car and get out in order to retrieve it. The Seals waited for Sydney to come down the driveway, and just like they planned, He stopped his car and got out to get the newspaper. Arthur Seal, wearing a ski mask, grabbed Sidney and Irene pulled the van up. Arthur pushed Sidney toward the van, and he cooperated. Once the van door was opened, though, Sidney saw a large, coffin-like box in the back and began to resist. Arthur Seal and Sidney Riso struggled, and Arthur, armed with a gun, shot him in the arm. He then taped his eyes shut with duct tape and bound him by the arms and legs and gagged him. Sidney was placed inside the homemade pine box, bleeding from the wound on his arm, and the Seals drove off, but they made a critical mistake. They had forgotten to leave the ransom note. The Seals drove the van 28 miles to Washington, New Jersey to a self-storage unit that they had rented, They loaded Sidney Riso in the pine box into a metal storage locker. They did little to provide any medical care to his gunshot wound, other than a little antiseptic and Tylenol. They planned to keep Sidney alive in the storage locker while they demanded the ransom. For the next three days, the SEALs gave Sidney a little bit of water and fed him oranges, but nothing else. There were breathing holes in the pine box where he lay bound, but the inside of the storage locker reached a temperature of about 100 degrees during the day. On day five, the SEALs arrived at the storage unit and opened the pine box to find Sidney Riso dead, lying in his own waste. They disposed of his body in a shallow grave in a remote area and continued on with their ransom plan, as if he were still alive. Irene Seal told the investigators that the death of Sidney Riso bothered her and she wanted his family to be able to give him a proper burial. The police allowed her to lead them to Riso's body, which the Seals had left in the Pine Barrens area of southern New Jersey. Sidney Riso, a man with medical issues due to a heart attack, who was without his medication, had died alone and terrified inside a box of heat exhaustion. His autopsy indicated that he had injuries to his wrists due to the way that he was bound and that four of his teeth had been knocked out as they were in his stomach. Irene Seal tried to claim that he had died of natural causes. The Seals were motivated not by their love of the environment. They were no international terrorists, just a suburban couple greedy for money. They were in approximately $750,000 of debt, unemployed, and were living with Arthur's parents in New Jersey and were chasing a luxurious lifestyle that they couldn't afford. Arthur Seal, a former police officer, left his employment at Exxon in 1987 and moved his family to Vail, Colorado, and then to Hilton Head, South Carolina. Trying to keep up with the Joneses, they got heavily in debt and saw kidnapping for ransom as their way to live the life they wanted. Their home in Lebanon Township was searched after their arrest, and according to Michael Chertoff, United States attorney, items that were found included guns, lists of banks in Switzerland, passports, and a book about money laundering. Irene Seal was convicted of kidnapping, extortion, conspiracy, and improper use of the mail system related to the ransom letters. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Her sentence was light due to her cooperation with police and her testimony against her husband. Judge Stanton told her at the sentencing that she, quote, got away with murder. Arthur Seal was convicted of mail fraud, kidnapping, extortion, weapons possession, and felony murder. He was sentenced to 95 years in prison. There are a few different motives behind kidnappings, including money for ransom, coercion to give the kidnappers their desired result, may it be the opening of a bank vault or taking over an armored car, as well as politically motivated kidnappings. When it comes to the history of kidnapping for ransom, the end results have varied, both in the quote-unquote success of the kidnappers in getting what they set out for, as well as the varying success in finding the victim alive and well. There was John Paul Getty III, the 16-year-old grandson of an oil tycoon who was kidnapped in 1973. A ransom was demanded, but his grandfather did not pay until Getty's ear was mailed to a newspaper by the kidnappers. Getty was eventually returned home, and several suspects were later arrested. This story was later depicted in the 2017 film All the Money in the World. And of course, there was the abduction of the Lindbergh baby, one of the most famous cases in international history, and which had similar parallels to the Sydney Riso kidnapping in terms of ransom notes. It's possible the SEALs studied this case for ideas on how to carry out their plan. In the case of the Lindbergh baby, the kidnapper sent a total of twelve ransom letters. The ransom was paid, the baby was found deceased and the suspect was caught by tracing the money he had been using in New York City. He was eventually sentenced to death and electrocuted. With the confession and testimony of Irene Seal and the evidence in the case, the desperation for the money and the poor planning made it nearly impossible for a positive outcome for the victim or a quote-unquote successful outcome for the kidnappers. Seemingly, you could say that the Seal's plan was to release Sidney Riso upon receipt of the ransom. Duct-taping his eyes shut could indicate that they were avoiding his being able to identify them or to know where his location was. While their original plan may not have necessarily included or planned the murder of Sidney, they also didn't intend to abandon their plan if they ended up killing him. Now, there is no doubt that the SEALs murdered Sidney. That's not even up for debate. Caring for their victim and ensuring his safety was not paramount. Surprisingly, with their months of planning, the least amount of detail was actually spent on problem-solving or changing direction if their plan went awry. The time period after Sydney died, to the day that the SEALs attempted to secure the ransom, seemed disorganized. Phone calls that never came as planned, timetables that they seemed to forget to call attention to, repeated calls from the same payphone, calls and letters from within a certain radius of the victim's home, had they not planned for the potential murder of Sidney Riso? Was their original plan to secure the ransom much earlier? Were they scrambling to figure out what to do with his body and how to make the exchange without him? Was their bizarre instructions and sloppy scavenger hunts actually a part of their original plan? Or, was it a last-minute struggle to figure out how to get to their outcome? It's hard to wrap your head around the idea that you could go to such lengths to capture a human being, but treat that human with such careless, cruel torture that you've essentially kissed goodbye the only collateral that you had. The bottom line is that they valued a superficial life over that of a human being. Further, they complicated matters in their attempt to hide their identities which ultimately just led investigators right to them. It's pretty mind-boggling, too, to think that a couple could possibly get away with this, even if they did successfully get their ransom money. Did they truly think that they'd go on as millionaires for the rest of their lives and that 300 investigators would simply shrug their shoulders? Irene Seal was released from prison in 2010. In 2020... Arthur Seal wrote a 20-page letter asking for compassionate release from prison due to some medical issues and the outbreak of COVID-19 among inmates. Release was denied. Sidney Riso was laid to rest at Metri Cemetery in New Orleans. His wife, Patricia, eventually remarried and passed away in 2011. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review, whoever you listen. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.